Welcome to Detangle, where we untangle the complexities of life one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Kinjal Goel, a psychologist and a writer. Today we shall delve into the world of luxury and fashion with none other than Mr. Tarun Tahiliani himself. Psychology sneaks into fashion design and fashion lends itself to our moods. The co-founder of Onsom, Mumbai's first multi-designer store, and of course his own fashion house, Mr. Tahiliani is a creative force to reckon with. Welcome to Detangle, Tarun, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Kinjal. Nice to be here with you. Well, let's start with the questions, Tarun. I can't wait to know so much that I have been wanting to ask you for a very long time. So, Tarun, when you design your clothes, when you design so much on a daily basis, how do cultural and psychological factors influence this aesthetic and design? Well, from a wearer's point of view, psychology is a very important part. If you look at Maslow's hierarchical needs, you know, clothing starts at a very basic level for, you know, covering the body from the elements. Then it goes to the next stage, which is, you know, some kind of modesty, societal norms. And finally, as we see today a lot on Instagram and with wealth, it's for people to project themselves. They're projecting wealth, they're projecting power, they're projecting sensuality, I mean, you know, the way a woman might dress at night. There's multiple different things. So I can't, as a designer, take all of that into account. I design from a very different point of view, which is largely, to answer your question, rooted in our culture, but in our lifestyle. Fashion is designed for a life, a life that people lead. So three generations back, women might have sat at home and wore only saris, but they barely left their home except maybe to shop or for social engagement in the immediate community. Today, lives are very different. You know, if someone's living in Malad and coming to South Bombay to work, because fashion's not only for the super rich, it's for everybody. Uh, you know, I can see why being in a sari is not as convenient as wearing trousers or a shalwar kameez, you know, because it's just easier. You, well, you have much more mobility and so and so forth. But when I design, I always say that I grew up in South Bombay. Mm -hmm. And the greatest gift that fashion gave me is it made me appreciate and love India in a way that I never understood was possible. I grew up in Jesuit schools. We wanted to go to the clubs. We were sniffy about everything Indian. We grew up in this post-colonial haze of trying to be westernized and, you know, only appreciating what the West has. And we all did piano and we know and did classical music and we only spoke English, blah, blah, blah. True. And fashion took me to a world and made me love this country in a way that I would never have had I not got into this field. You know, I've spent time in Kutch, I've spent time outside Lucknow block printing, and I've seen the beauty of our craft. So my mission is to take Indian workmanship and craftsmanship and make a contemporary clothing that works for today's man and woman, that fits in with our lifestyle, rather than just forgetting everything and wearing Western clothes, and at weddings suddenly everyone going into Indian costume and trying to be Jodha, Akbar, or Maharajas, you know. I mean, that's okay. It is <laughs> well the, said. Yeah, that, but, that is what is happening. Indian yeah, clothes have become costumes for us. Yeah, and, and they're uncomfortable, and people are struggling in 30 kilo things. You know, before... I mean, I've studied in Ritu Kumar's beautiful book, all costumes that to me, and they're 200 kalis in a lenga, but they just sat. No one was to let us, nobody danced. 
they sat and were on display before a big wedding. Mm-hmm. It was a different lifestyle that was for projection. Today's lifestyle allows so much that there shouldn't be about projection, I think. Uh, but, you know, we've evolved and you are liberated and educated and one should dress and understand that luxuries for oneself. So anyway, for me, I want to revive. So we do chicken curry, we do khashida kam, and everyone thinks of Indian fashion in terms of color and embroidery. But for me, the most powerful thing is the draped form. And I always say when I'm talking, if I landed on a parachute 200 years back, I would know by looking around me, just as I would know if I had a language or taste of the food, I would know by the way people draped fabric, what part of the country I was in. It was that distinct a visual vocabulary, you know. So in Kathiawar, Dilwe, Safas and Dhotis the same way, but it still looks individualistic. And the Gujarati sari is different to, say, the Nawar in Maharashtra, to the Kurgi sari, to Bengali. So I want to also keep this draped form. Even if people can't drape that way, I want to keep it in the consciousness because it's something that suits Indian body types and is beautiful. And, you know, with our new ready-to-wear, I'm sure we will be able to offer it at an accessible price point and make it very relevant. When we started on some, you know, the need post-socialism was to revive Indian fantasticness in weaves and imagery. And so it kind of went in that trajectory. And I think we've got where we need to go. Now we're using our technical knowledge of structured clothing because that didn't exist in India. You and me and somebody one-tenth my size could share one churidar because it was on an arapati. It isn't so anymore. (laughs) True. So that's really what my mission is. And so I work out of a very strong cultural context, a global context of what fashion is, and the needs of people. Because fashion isn't something pretty to be looked at. It's to be lived in. You live your life. Every new pattern we do, we have fit models who come in once every week or two, and we make them walk. Can you sit? Can you stand? Can you get out of a car? You know, so Mm -hmm. that it's functional and it's comfortable. And that's the purpose of fashion. And particularly today, if you want sustainability, if clothes feel beautiful on your skin, you'll wear them again and again. And if it's just some uncomfortable projection, you'll wear it once and never touch it again. So many things... There's so much that goes behind what you do, you know. What we see are these beautiful clothes on your racks and on your mannequins. But we don't know the thought process, the whole feeling that you put into it. I want to tell you, it's a very intense and demanding life. And you're always working and always in the studio. And of course, in India, because things get copied all the time, you have to keep innovating, which is fun. I enjoy that. I'm not complaining. But I'm saying it's a demanding life. It's not like you can work intensely like a movie star and then take off for four months till you start your next movie. Uh, you know, or better still model polyester clothes and make a fortune. But, uh, you know, it's a different thing. And it's very, you survive in it because you love it. And that's the way it is, you know. It's intense. It's not what people think it is. It's not about glamour. It's not about any of that. That's a little tip of the iceberg, which is part of the marketing. True. So tell me, uh, I'm sure you see this a lot. I hear about it a lot from my own patients that sometimes all you need to do is get up, dress up and show up. So you see a lot of your clients feel good, feel empowered and feel beautiful when they are in your creations. How does that make you feel? I think it's a wonderful thing. 
I had a wonderful, wonderful friend who was the studio muse called Minal Modi, Lalit Modi's late wife, who was mm -hmm. extremely beautiful and sophisticated and had the most exquisite taste I've ever seen, truly understated. And she had her own point of view and elegance, whether she was wearing Western or Indian clothes, you could see the same aesthetic. And she was very sick. And she rang me out of the blue in Bombay and said, listen, I need you to make me a sari and a beautiful blouse. And I want this sort of color. And I don't think I'm going to live very long. And I said, Minal, stop it, stop it. This is too morbid. And she said, no, I want to be carried out in the same way that I lived. I'm doing this for myself. And you're not going to believe it. I had to make her this beautiful couture blouse. I went to see her in London five days before. She made her daughter try it. And she was carried out exactly as she wanted, with the flowers and the jewelry of her choice. Simple, beautiful, serene, because she did it for herself. Oh, that so, is so heartbreakingly beautiful. It is. But, you know, this is the extreme of somebody who was such an aesthete that nothing was done for anybody else. It's just that she didn't know any other way. And even if little pills came, I mean, always staying at her house in Juhu, so it was such a beautiful experience, even the way a breakfast tray would come up to the room, because she just didn't know any other way. And I think that's the power of fashion. You can put on something and transform how you feel, and it affects your self-image. And of course, for luxury, it must feel good on your skin. It must be comfortable, naturally. Uh, but it has the power to transform. It's like, you know how they say the soul lives in many skins? Well, the body lives in many different avatars of costume or clothing, which can transform the way you feel and empower you if you allow it or drag you down if you allow it, you know. It's up to you. Absolutely. I'm sure you understand uh, color and the psychology of color much more than most of us do in our daily lives. Does that understanding of how color will impact a client's mind help you when you're uh, creating specialty pieces, especially, you know, if it's for a bride or if it's for, let's say, a groom for his wedding. Does color psychology come in? You know, I think that no one can deny and we Indians on our skin can carry and it is part of our tradition to wear very bright and wonderful colors. You know, we can carry shades of green and yellow and orange, but, you know, a lot of this, if I might say so. True in Rajasthan and Kutch, where also people lived in very arid surroundings, very brown villages, you know, uh, with mud houses and stuff, and there were dust storms. And so the bright color was also used as a beacon to be seen, to be, you know, uh, in that aridness, it gave things life. I think when you live in a city, in a, a beautiful, however beautiful an apartment, and, you know, with all the clutter and excess of money and industrial wealth that people live in today, I think the idea of color has to be changed and toned down because in this milieu, it's very different to living in rural India and prancing around in some hot pink thing, you know what I mean? And all people always wore that sort of thing. And it was just one kind of costume. The women who wore saris wore saris. The men who wore dhotis were white, but they might have worn red safas, you know, in kutch for instance, Gathewad. Mm. So I think that it's an individual thing. Of course, there are some people who just live and love in bright colors, and it's fine because it's true to what they respond to. Some have a different color idea of what suits their skin. Some feel that colors lift their skin, and you know, some don't. 
But in today's world, where there's so much embroidery and cut and jewelry and makeup artists, I tend to prefer more subtle things. And I'm always being shouted by my, oh my God, oh my God, again the collection's 50% beige and dull gold. And, you know. But I think that in our urban milieu, this works very well for me. If you're wearing a bright red or pink, it's beautiful if it's plain, but if it's red and pink with gold and embroidery, then I think, for my eye, I prefer it when it starts toning down a bit, just because there's so much going on that it's easier on the eye. But it's a personal thing. There's no right or wrong. Well, you are a man behind my own heart because those are the colors that always appeal to me because they're so understated and we are so overstimulated, like you said. Exactly. We're living in the age of overstimulation and how. And now with Instagram, we've taken stimulation to another level of projection, you know, as well. I mean, I actually feel sorry for some of these Indian socialites who I look at who day in, day out are out there wearing different clothes, projecting, trying to make their lives sound so wonderful and and I just feel exhausted, thinking, my God, what effort. Every you sit there dressing up to take a photograph to tell someone you're on this yacht or that. I mean, poor thing in a way. It's like the Empress's new clothes, you know, that lovely fable where yes. everyone's bang, bang, bang and saying, wonderful, wonderful, and Bichara standing naked. <laughs> I think this is a kind of emotional nakedness, if you want, that has such a need to be revered or whatever you want to call it. God knows what it is. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so be it. True. There's also this whole psychology of luxury, which I find very fascinating. Luxury means so many different things to different people. Somebody wants to look like they have arrived. Somebody wants to dress in a certain way to prove to themselves that they have arrived. And fashion is the first step of luxury. So how do you deal with this demand of, you know, just looking rich and looking well, gorgeous? Well, you know, for a long time, luxury was the purview of the rich. Say till 30, 40 years back, before this explosive wealth happened, right? True. So it, normally, if you look at a Maharaja or Maharani, look at Gayatri Devi. Is mm. there anyone whose photographs are more understated with her two strands of pearls or always one necklace, chiffon? Because she was to the manner born. The same Minal Modi used to say to me, I don't wear a logo. I don't need a logo. I put my hand in a bag. And my hand will tell me if it's luxury or not, because it's what you feel. But in today's world, where people are just trying to show they've arrived, it's the logo, because I don't think a lot of them understand why it's so luxurious. They want logos from head to toe. I mean, I see people in Emporio and Delhi, logo t-shirt, logo pants, logo <laughs> you know, everything has a logo, glasses have a big thing, you know, Jobia Dior or something written. And I, it feels like it's exhausting, you know. I mean, I used to shout at my children and say, you're wearing all these T-shirts, you know, these soccer things. I mean, you're advertising Emirates, you're advertising, are you being paid for this? Are you crazy? Like, what is <laughs> That's this? That's some you way know? to look at it, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so it's, I suppose a lot of it is part of identification. And that's, again, a first stage in the evolution of money. And that's why, in fact, I was thinking, you know, Louis Vuitton's bags are really beautifully made. I mean, they last. But I was just thinking, if they remove those logos, I wonder, and the pricing was half, sales should technically double, the sales would be one-tenth. Most people are carrying it for the logo, I think. So, you know, I oh, think this is a new world. There's a lot of money. It is. These are all badges of identification. 
but truly people people who are truly secure and comfortable in their skin they may wear it because you like the product no problem but are equally comfortable wearing things that have no mark of identification i think a really good example i like to give is this designer called brunello cuccinelli who does cashmere sweaters and they're very expensive and someone once gifted me one and i love the feeling of it on my skin that i wear it 100 times and i look after it more carefully than anything else and that's true luxury and if you want the world to be sustainable or you want sustainable fashion the only answer is to buy quality and use it 100 times not to be flippant and not to buy fast fashion that just looks good in a picture and throw it away there are 90 billion pieces of clothing going into landfills every year at least we need to think about all of this true and that actually brings me to my next question fashion is literally ever changing and never changing and now with this speed i mean people are throwing things away so fast but do you think that the psychological relationship that people had with their clothing and style has now changed you know like everything i think it's hard to uh, you know just generalize mm-hmm. i think indian fashion has been a textile fashion traditionally so you can take out your great grandmother sarees and wear it but if you're french or english i dare say you would not be able to wear your great grandmother's clothes even if they fit you perfectly right they would look from a different period here you can change your blouse you can wear it in a contemporary way so i think that a lot of this consumerism has been fueled by economic growth and department stores saying that okay how do we sell next so we make the new thing come into fashion so next mm-hmm. season lime green is in fashion so shoes bags everything will be connected it's like you know that's what's called the trend but today more and more people today's world has so many people in the game that there are multiple trends so you know someone could choose to look like a traditional sabhyasachi bride someone could look like vidishman or other thing someone could look like base sophistication in tt i mean everything goes right just in that one category true but i think that this fast fashion which is to effect and help people you know define themselves and it's it's partly a manipulation and marketing and it's also people's insecurity or desire to show that different and instagrams made it worse because i hear a lot of women never want to be seen in the same outfit twice and none of this is good for luxury or sustainability or even one's own sense of self what's more beautiful than your personality or your mind or your face that you you don't change your face every day but chalo aaj they're changing their face also with plastic surgery mm-hmm, i know looking reta- retarded half the time so anyway it's it's a phase you know life mm-hmm. and the world always corrects itself and uh, anyway i don't mean to sound pessimistic but i don't think at the rate at which we are going this david atmer says that this halocene the fifth halocene which is the current incarnation of the planet is going to survive too much longer i mean every day there's some kind of hideous thing happening new york city yesterday you yeah. see the videos my god anyway so uh, when you talk about you know people trying to fit in people trying to stay relevant it makes me think about all these body issues that now we've been trying to hide you know now people don't even talk about having any body dysmorphia but they do everyone wants to look a little bit better than the mirror tells them they do so i'm sure you are the champions on the front lines when it comes to body image how do you as a brand deal with that 
You know, again, I always say, if you take a typical, very large Indian woman, mm-hmm. and she was to go and Mr. Armani cut her pantsuit, I mean, she'd look okay, maybe. But if she knows how to drape herself in a sari, you know, with her little nut and her bindi and from fresh flowers, that was the idea of beauty in India. And it still looks great, even if three rolls of fat are hanging out of her blouse, you know. Somehow mm-hmm. it just works because the draped form. And, and in, in our society, till two generations back, it was cool to look bigger. No one had a problem with it. It's definitely healthier to be slim. It's healthier to be fit. You feel much better. I myself have, you know, issues of my body because, you know, I was very slim growing up and I'm always struggling and I'm always working out, but I'm also overeating and, you know, tailored clothes look better on a certain form. It's mm-hmm. part of, you know, it's the kind of the, what should the malaise of our times. You know, part of it is good for health. Part of it is unrealistic in terms of what is projected. I find so much advertising so dishonest because you can doctor images. And they, you know, I remember Preeti Zinta talking about a shoot at Vogue where they put her on a stool, then they drop this long Kavali dress and she suddenly looks six feet two and a totally different proportion. And I always told that editor, I said, why are you doing this to Indian women? It's not the Indian body. What, you know, you're making beautiful Indian women feel complex about their bodies. True. It's not your right to do this. You have to celebrate who we are. But, you know, it all goes back, Doc, to being colonized in such a big way that we're always looking west for our idea of beauty and our idea of this. That's why everyone's going blonde right now. I mean, the whole <laughs> thing looks so ridiculous to my eye, but you know, I don't know what to do and say. I think people who are comfortable in their skin always look much better and are sensuous, you know, uh, Mm. about it. And that's just the way it is. I mean, I think Adele is one of the most fabulous looking creatures on the earth, you know. I think Rekha in her sari is beautiful. I think many women here are gorgeous. They're not thin or skinny or anorexic. It's fine. Yeah, true. You know, I think it's such a great time to be alive. There's diversity, there's inclusivity. Everyone's expanding their horizons of creativity. People are more accepting. But I also feel that there's a very strong paradox right now in society where there is offense being taken at everything, right? You can uh, say anything, you can do anything. I mean, this is wokeism at its extreme. Yes, it is a very nice time. But I think there's also so many conflicting. I actually feel sorry for children coming of age at this time, because unless you have a very deep keel of your own consciousness and your uh, sense of self, I think looking outward to find your own identity is confusing the shit out of people. It's like, you know, going to a table and seeing thousand dishes, you're dazed. You don't even know where to start, right? It's only so much, and I think everything's becoming too much information, too much sensory overload. Not enough downtime. Something we all suffer from, you know. If I sit for half a day and I'm not doing something, I jump up and I feel guilty. It's ridiculous, but it's true. And I think that's a modern malaise. So, yes, it is fantastic in terms of at this time you can express yourself, be yourself, but you have to have that conviction to do it. And I think a lot of people suffer from anxiety and depression and so many other things you would know better than me. Uh, you know, 
I've seen it amongst my children and their friends, and I'm unable to understand because they had things that we never had, but they'd never had the stillness and the forced downtime to germinate who they are, I think. That's you know, such a beautiful but, visual, you know. Like you're just left in the mud, and you've got your darkness around, and that's why I love that the, the line of that, you know, Goldie Hawn's book, "The Lotus Grows Out of the Mud," but mm. you have to be in there in that slash. And I don't know. I mean, just staying connected, and you know, in this vacuous way, and the television's on, and when my children are watching, sometimes I shudder them. They're watching three things at once, with three TVs and screen and screen and this match and that match, and then they do. Video games, and I said, "Is this a video game?" It's so realistic. I said, "When you actually see someone being killed, you're going to be immune, because you're like doing, you know, twenty-four-seven." So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I found a lot more people content forty, thirty, forty years back than I'm seeing now, and it could be my perception. I find a lot of people who work in design because they spend time on their own, and I'm sure scientists or doctors. There are many professions that are good. But I'm seeing a lot of angst in the younger generation today. Tell me, Tarun, if there is a young artist who wants to be a fashion designer, a lot of people have this question: Do they really need formal education to be a good designer, or should they be mentored by somebody wh- whose process they like? What's a better route? You know, like everything else, you know, Chanel was never. She didn't go to design school. She grew up in an orphanage, and she learned to sew and. She did many different things, and you know she was living with this man called Boy Capel, who was a great lover for life. And she'd wear his tweeds and his knits, and she decided that this should come into women's wear. So she had a lifetime of experience that she slowly expanded and took into a visceral process and brought it out in her creativity. Today's world is a little different, and particularly if you want to do. Fashion with construction, then I think it's important to learn how to sew. And since we don't sew in India ourselves, go to design school. I couldn't do all the structured draping that I do if mm-hmm. I didn't design school. In fact, I went much later, the age of thirty, because I was frustrated explaining things to Indian masterjis who couldn't do it. So, you know, McQueen worked at Savile Row before he went to Central Saint Martins, which is why he could cut like a dream. He didn't even need a pattern. It was just in his hands, you know. Oh wow! So I went to design school when I was much later, but I can draw anything. But even with the drawing, people can't understand. So you have to be able to technically explain it and break it down. And I think that comes from your own experience. And they always say that after ten thousand hours, you really get good. At Absolutely. And more than that, I think that. I think it's just a wonderful time to go to school if you can afford it. You have time to think. You have time to drape. You have to, whatever it is that you love, and develop a skill. I, I, I can. I don't see what's the harm in this. I think it's a gift to be able to do that. Sure, there'll be people who don't do it, but you know, then they become more textilely, or you know, you learn. We've learned embroidery. I don't embroider, but I know about every stitch. Because I've sat for hours over embroiderers who embroidered for me from 1987, and so I just wow. learned along. You know that apne hath se main nahi kar sakta, but I know ki isko yahan kar try this thing. And everything is always evolving. Embroidery will change because today great embroiderers are doing things. I think that being technical 
allows you to jump ahead. You know, it's like a stepping stone to developing, expressing your ideas. Right. Let me get down to a very personal question now. This is the question I like to ask all my guests. Um, you know, we all have a first aid box in the house, right? Something with band-aids and maybe Savlon, maybe some kind of other antiseptic or painkillers. For a bad day when we've cut or bruised ourselves, what mm-hmm. if you were to have a mental first aid box in your house and you were to keep things in it which would make you happy the instant you saw them, you know, like photographs or QR codes of your favorite songs. If you were to have a box like this, what would you put in it? I have to have pencil and paper to sketch. It always centers me. How lovely. My piano box so I can practice. Hmm. Something to have headphones so I can listen to music and nice walking shoes so that I can walk and listen to music. It always makes me happy. I, I love doing all these things. And How lovely. I, every day, yeah. How nice. Now tell me, Tarun, you know that I'm a psychologist. I am very far away from the field that you are so good at. But is there anything that you would like to ask me from my field? Actually, I love social psychology. I studied at the university. Oh, really? You know, this whole thing, you know, the Zimbardo experiment and people switching roles. And, you know, you, you know the whole famous experiment he did, right, with the prisoners and the prison guards the, the, mm-hmm. and the guards and then they switched it and people's behavior changed in almost like a you know prophecy that this is what this kind of character is meant to play with I always think that it's much nicer for humanity if we can just look at everybody equally and not be too fussed by the role we're here to play you know I could just as well have been your driver and you could have been my or my driver and my driver could have been sitting where I do so I always think that the best thing for humanity is to look at people with an even keel and not kind of be too fussed by all these position stations in life, right? Which, in, in fact, uh, you know, explain how we behave with different people. That you just be in a zone where you're self-regardless. But I feel with all the knowledge, we're moving away from this. And I really feel that that's the biggest hope that humanity needs. And I, I think that, like you said earlier, with all this information, with all this thing, I'm just watching the planet and looking at the countries and looking at the dictators and think, my God, we're going back to the far end. We're becoming worse. What is the problem today? That's my question for you. Wow, that's an existential crisis that you've put in front of me. But I think what you mentioned <laughs> and what you meant... Yeah. You know, meant is that keeping your identity fluid is extremely important because identities are not permanent. So this is what we also tell our clients that when you identify with only one thing, either your status, your role, your job, your, uh, you know, hierarchy in your family, the minute that shifts, your balance completely gets mm. thrown. And that's when people lose themselves. And that's when they get into an existential crisis. So if we can have, you know, identities which are fluid and free-flowing, we can be many things at once, we can be nothing for once. That's when we all learn to adapt and grow together. That's very well said. Wow. You're right. Well, it's, you know, I didn't expect this conversation to take all the little twists and turns that it did. Because when we think of fashion, honestly, it's only luxury, it's only temporary 
most people look at it as something that they desire but they don't see how beautifully invested a designer is in the art in the craft in the learning in the teaching oh, and it's a fascinating world out there yeah. i've been up since 4 o'clock working on different things I- i'm happiest doing it you know that's the gift of fashion of course you might businesses can do well and up and go down and you might make money and all the rest of it but there's nothing like sitting in your studio and working nothing how wonderful you know tarun after this conversation i really want to come to your store again a store which i have visited so many times but this time when i look at your creations i'm sure i look at them in a little different way i'll see a little but, bit more of you in your creations now uh, 16th of november and you'll be witness to something that you'll understand even with greater depth because oh, before sh- we close can you give us a little detail about what is happening on the 16th of november well i told you that we were working on a book called a journey to india modern because i love chicken curry i love this and i love that but i don't really want to see it in wedding clothes you know which have become like costumey and you know jodak bar and all this jazz that people used to describe it i wanted to see how we could take these and put them into modern avatars that could be worn in our day to day lives because luxury has to be worn all the time it's not a costume for a big you know this thing and i don't i also find it sad to see people just in western clothes and then all this over heavy indian for ganpati and this and that i think it's you know i think a country with a cultural heritage as rich as ours must find a new indian way that's more pervasive like our food is still very indian even though it's more healthy uh, but because we speak english we tend to become a little too westernized too fast and some of our socialites only promote that and you know we're still a little i think colonized in that respect i think our own magazines have failed us a lot of the time so the book is called a journey to india modern and you know i went to the kumbh mela because i love draping and looked at sadhus and photographed them and we came back into the draped collection and i went mm-hmm. to kutch and we did wonderful things with bandhani and then you know of course we did the miniature paintings and the pitch wise and you know in the pandemic because we were giving people things to embroider as wall hangs and that became a big collection of clothing so it's always a visceral process that something starts and evolves i worked with the sing twins you know was inspired by brinalini mukherjee so we're doing this parade for mm-hmm. the book to show which the book is structured like that inspiration from indian how it's been reinvented in a modern way and that's why it's called a journey to india modern so the sadhus will walk with the models wearing kumbh oh wow yeah and so and so forth that's what we're doing and i'm very excited it's crazy and we have village performers because i love a lot of desi performers and you know I always have oh, these nice. ideas and let's see what happens yeah it seems like a total treat for the senses absolutely should be Well it's been a true pleasure talking to you Tarun I am so grateful that I could have you with me today on my podcast to discuss so many aspects of psychology and fashion I've learned a lot and I'm sure that all our listeners are more keen to understand what clothes they're wearing why they feel a certain way and why they wish to dress a certain way thank you for sharing your expertise thank you for letting us know that fashion is so much deeper and so much more than what we just see in stores and it touches so many lives you know We did a show for B20 just two weeks before G20, and Piyush oh. Goyal, who's the very smart minister for uh, textiles, mm-hmm. came up to us and said he was 
almost embarrassed to say fashion, but when he saw the show and he saw the response, and I said, sir, when you see a lenga coming down the ramp, it's been worked on in a village for six months. So it's actually really artisanal, and it represents a heritage and craftsmanship at a very deep level. And he said, I understood the soft power of fashion. So three cheers to that, and look forward to seeing you on the 16th. Absolutely, and more power to you, more power to everybody who works with you. Thank and you. just thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Bye-bye.